You are listening to America's home for stadium news and information. Stadiums USA Radio. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. The heavy weight of inadequate NFL football stadium facilities is finally sinking the city of San Diego. The Chargers are moving up the coast, first to a soccer stadium in Carson, California, and then finally to Kroenke World in Inglewood. NFL insider Jason Cole reviews the move. In stark contrast, Kansas City's Arrowhead Stadium remains one of the NFL's best stadiums. The Chiefs aren't moving. They host the Pittsburgh Steelers. SB Nation's Joel Thorman tells us why Chiefs fans love this stadium. In the aftermath of the college football playoff championship, we'll look at how major universities are piling up hundreds of millions of dollars in stadium debt, a debt load that threatens college athletics. Our guest, Bloomberg writer Eben Novi Williams. That's coming up on this week's edition of Stadiums USA Radio. But first, the Stadiums Beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Well, it is official. After 56 years in San Diego, the Chargers have announced they will head north and become the Los Angeles Chargers. Owner Dean Spanos drafted a letter to Chargers fans this week saying after much deliberation, he has decided to relocate the team to their original home. You may remember the Chargers began their existence in the old AFL as the LA Chargers playing in the Coliseum. Their home for the next two years will not be the Coliseum. They will play their home games in Carson at the StubHub Center, a 30,000 seat soccer venue. In 2019, they will move to Inglewood and share a new facility with Rams owner Stan Kroenke. Plenty more on this story coming straight ahead. Elsewhere, Raiders owner Mark Davis reiterated his intentions to move the team to Las Vegas. Davis made his pitch this week before the NFL's stadium and finance committees. Davis did not officially file for relocation as he has until next month to do so. NFL executive Eric Grubman called the progress Davis has made to Vegas impressive, which may be all we need to know about where the Raiders are headed. And the home of the World Series champion Chicago Cubs is getting into the football business. The venerable Wrigley Field in 2020 will be hosting college football. Northwestern plans on hosting Big Ten football games that year. And the more intriguing, Cubs officials are working on hosting a college bowl game at Wrigley. You may recall the Bears called Wrigley Field home from 1921 through 1970. Bill, that is the very latest. Okay, Jeff, thank you. First, there were none. Now there are two, two NFL teams who will be sharing the Los Angeles market. What are the ramifications of all of this? And uh, when it comes to ramifications, that's Jason Cole's middle name from the NFL Insider. And we're going to visit with Jason right now. Jason, let's start with your impressions uh, of this announcement, a big one, obviously, and an important one. Uh, How do you size it up? Well, ramifications is good since I'm a former Rams fan (laughs) growing up. 
it's an interesting thing. It's sad, of course, for San Diego, just like it was sad for St. Louis, uh, you know, a year ago at the time when they were going through this. And I think it's complicated for the Chargers, a little more complicated than bringing the Rams back to Los Angeles because the Rams have at least an older fan base, you know, still existed. Guys who are, you know, basically my age and older, you know, were, were Rams fans. So they had that. The Chargers don't have anything like that. The Chargers are going to start from scratch here and playing in a 30,000-seat stadium, trying to build a fan base, trying to build uh, a group of people who are going to be interested in the team. They don't have any of that. So we're going to see if they're able to do it. I think it's going to take a long time, and I think they're going to be sort of like the Clippers to the Lakers for a long time. The only advantage they have is the Rams are certainly not the Lakers um, in terms of how embedded they are in the L.A. culture mm-hmm. and how they are viewed as winners. The Rams don't have anything like that. So I think the Chargers have a chance to make some inroads, but it's going to be challenging. Early reporting on this more or less describes the situation as one of necessity more than anything else. Uh, Does that pretty well size up the complexity of how this played out? Well, I mean, in terms of necessity for the Chargers, yeah. I mean, they had to do this because they weren't going to get a stadium in in San Diego. It was simply that the, the city, the county, and San Diego State, which needs a stadium as, as well, they were not going to do enough to help out for the Chargers to get them financially over the top to get a stadium done. The other part of this is the Chargers have been at this with the city of San Diego for 14 years now. This is not a news story. I know people in San Diego want to blame the Chargers and be angry with the Chargers, which certainly makes a whole lot of sense. I get that also direct some of that anger at the city because they were warned an awful long time ago that the lack of a stadium there was going to be a problem Mm -hmm. and they were possibly going to lose their team at some point in time. The fact that Dean Spanos let it play out this long turned them into sort of the boy who cried wolf and nobody ever believed that they were actually going to leave. But that day has now come, you know, that failure to realize that has blown up in San Diego's face. For a lot of the Chargers fan base, the team has moved further away, but probably still within driving distance. It's now about 85, 90, 95 miles away straight up the coast. How much of that fan base could actually still continue to follow the team and attend games uh, in Los Angeles? They can, but I don't think they will. Because, look, anybody who's ever been to San Diego understands that people from San Diego do not view themselves with any kind of association for Los Angeles. There's a tremendous amount of disdain from San Diego toward Los Angeles. In return, there's a lot of indifference from Los Angeles to San Diego. People in Los Angeles kind of view anything that comes from San Diego, such as the Clippers, as being an inferior product desperate to make a name for itself. And so... I don't know that there's going to be a whole lot of people from San Diego going up to chase the Chargers. Maybe there'll be a few hundred, maybe a couple of thousand. I have no idea. But it's not going to be, you know, 15 or 20,000 people. It's just not going to happen. What about L.A. as a two-team NFL market? Uh, Does that work? Look, I think, again, I come back to the word challenging. And, again, I grew up in Los Angeles and grew up a Rams fan. I know that the Rams had problems drawing. And people point at that a lot. But the Rams had problems drawing because the stadium was completely substandard. Going to the Coliseum was terrible. And then when the Raiders came there, it was also terrible. And then when the Rams moved to Orange County, 
nobody in Los Angeles wanted to go down to Orange County. So a lot of the time it's been because the stadium situation is so bad that people have not wanted to partake in it. We will see if Cronky World will change that. The other thing is, like, there are 18 million people in a four-county area, Los Angeles County, Orange County, uh, San Bernardino, Riverside, all those areas. There's 18 million people. There's more than enough people to support two teams if you can get them excited. The other part of this is they have lots of alternatives. You cover the entire league, and right now we are in a time of uh, turbulence, instability. There's a lot of movement of franchises, a lot of stuff going on. How does this fit into that overall picture, and what does it say about league stability right now? Oh, look, we've dealt with this before. (laughs) We've dealt with, again, we've dealt with the Cleveland Browns moving. We've dealt with the Baltimore Colts moving in the middle of the night. Uh, we've dealt with the Raiders moving to Los Angeles and then moving back to Oakland. We've dealt with the Houston Texans moving to Tennessee um, and hopscotching through two cities in to bring in the team back to Houston. Um, this happens, and it's not fun. It makes a lot of people very angry. But ultimately, the NFL game is pretty well coded in Teflon because people want to watch NFL football. They're attracted to it. It's a fantastic sport um, in the ritual sense of it, in the violence sense of it, in the competition sense of it. It tends to endure even its darkest moments. Jason, we want to thank you very much for the visit. It's a fascinating big story occurring this week, and thanks for setting aside a little time with us to uh, to chat about this. No problem. Anytime. I appreciate it. Thank, thank you, you, Jason. Jason Cole of the NFL Insider. Now, coming up next in the aftermath of the college football playoff championship game, we dive into the economics of college football football. Bloomberg's Evan Novi williams joins us next on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out fanessentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. If you haven't had a chance to see it, Bloomberg has just released a five-part series regarding college football, and this really drills down into it. It has to do with the finances of college football, the structure of the financing. And so we're going to visit with our sports business reporter who undertook this assignment, and a fascinating one. Eben Novi-Williams is our guest. Uh, I know when you go into an assignment like this, you don't go in with conclusions, you go in with questions. But let's start with an overview of what this problem looks like. Uh, What did you discover as you drilled down into it? Sure. I mean, the more I talked with administrators and athletic directors around the country, uh, the more I began to realize that this kind of popular narrative that college sports is 
a swimming in money and has a very bright future ahead of it. Uh, the more I kind of found out that that narrative is, uh, it's kind of suspect. And the more you talk to people that aren't at Ohio State, aren't at Alabama, aren't at Michigan, mm-hmm. the more you realize that the, the quest to keep up with those bigger schools is severely straining a lot of the uh, the smaller athletic departments and a lot of the smaller schools. And it's doing it in a number of ways. Um, and it became increasingly clear to me over the course of the reporting that we're heading towards some kind of big fracture. Um, and I don't know exactly what that looks like. I would be a smarter man, certainly, if I did. Um, but what we have right now is a very unsustainable business model for almost all of the universities and colleges out there that are competing in Division One sports. Of course, when we're talking about these kind of expenditures, we're talking about facilities and stadiums rise to the top of that, not only new stadiums, but stadium renovations, which are uh, quite extensive. Let's get into that and see what the impact from a financial standpoint is in these areas. Oh, it's absolutely massive, Bill, as you said. I mean, it, one of the biggest expenditures that these that these schools have is trying to build better facilities. And that's, as you said, it's not just stadiums, it's, it's football facilities, training practice facilities, practice fields. Clemson's building one right now that has a, a spa in it a smoothie bar, a, a slide, and a mini golf course. <laughs> you know, we've gone off the deep end in terms of what we're what we're being what we're providing for athletes. Um, and it, this is just a it's an arms race. It's a it's an attempt to get the best players because when you get the best players, your team is better, and then you put more butts in seats, you command more money for your media rights, you have bigger alumni donations, kind of all as part and parcel of the same paper chase. Um, But when you look at schools, and one of the stories we worked on was about debt at, at the college football level, when you look at the debt that a lot of these universities have taken on from an athletic standpoint, it's almost all facilities. You know, University of California at Berkeley took on a half a billion dollars of debt to renovate their stadium mm. a couple of years ago. Um, and that debt service put them in a huge hole this year. They're going to be in a pretty big deficit next year. Um, and they have a task force right now on campus that's essentially assessing how they can come out of this uh, this downturn uh, financially, and whether that means cutting programs, whether that means increasing student support to the athletic department, which is already in the millions of dollars coming out of the academic missions to go to the athletic missions. Mm-hmm. What can schools like, say, a Georgia Tech, a Northwestern, a Vanderbilt, which are fighting the battle uphill in a situation like this, what can they do in terms of the fan experience at games to improve attendance, improve awareness and interest? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I am of the, uh, there are people really divided on this issue, but there are people out there that think that to improve the, the fan experience at live events, you want to mimic the experience that you can get on your couch. And that means maybe more comfortable seats. That means better Wi-Fi. That means maybe a second screen at your seat. And then there are people that go the opposite route and think that what is special about going to a live football game, we'll use Stanford as as an example. What's special about going to a Stanford football game is that you have the band there and you have students there that are going crazy. And there is something there that is inherently different from being on your couch. And you want to highlight that as much as possible. I'm in that second camp personally. I think if you're an administrator or an athletic director, you really want to set up a situation where 
there is something different about going to games than there is just sitting there and watching them on your TV. And it's one thing that if you're in the college sports world and if you've ever been to a big-time college football or basketball game, they're different than the programs. And largely that's because of the students that are there. There is an, there is an atmosphere quality that exists in college sports and a passion among the fans that just doesn't really exist in the same way at the pro level. And that's the kind of thing that I think administrators, they need to hone in on. They need to figure out ways to get people in the community out uh, and get them essentially addicted to the idea that being at a game is so much better than being at home, even if it is slightly more expensive, even if it is a little more inconvenient, um, even if you do have to focus on one thing as opposed to four or five with your phone and your computer out mm-hmm. on the couch next to you. Um, those are the kind of things they need to hone in on. Evan, I'd like to ask you about broadcasting revenues, and you spoke to this a little earlier. We see a lot of stadium efforts now to include broadcasting specifically in the build-out, like Texas A&M's a situation where they built their 12-man production studios right into uh, Kyle Field. How long does this yellow brick road actually go, and how long can this, as a major uh, income source, be sustained with the growth rates we're currently seeing? Oh man, that is quite literally the billion-dollar question, Bill. Mm-hmm. And uh, people do people do not know the answer. You're absolutely right. There's the capacity from a video standpoint is so much better right now at schools across the country, and that goes from from the biggest schools like Texas A&M you mentioned all the way down to schools like New Mexico State and their Aggie Vision. Uh, they have a broadcast truck that's state of the art down there. Um, and part of that is a push for the almighty TV dollar, which is the reason why spending has skyrocketed so much in college sports in the past 10 years. And also the reason why people are so concerned about things like uh, debt service, for example, because you're right, as as the media world fragments and as we talked about millennials view TV a little differently and next round of negotiations for kind of all these sports properties are going to include companies like Facebook. They'll include companies like Twitter, Amazon, Verizon, in addition to your your cable TV networks like, like Fox and ESPN. Uh, if that money goes down and there are people out there that think that it might, then we're looking at a, a much more dire situation financially. One thing we do know definitively is that the money that is flowing into college sports right now is growing really only for the the best schools, the high premium conferences. I mean, you mentioned that Big Ten deal. Uh, they're getting $440 million starting next year for their TV. Mm. Uh, the Conference USA, which is another FBF conference, albeit a much smaller one, they're getting less than $3 million uh, next year for their TV deal. So $450 million versus $3 million. So while there may be more money for a lot of these higher-end, high properties like the Big 12 and the Big 10 and the Pac-12, the, the, the really premium schools and the ones that have a huge national footprint, it's already started to shatter a bit for, for your schools like East Carolina, for your schools like Georgia mm-hmm. State, who are who are playing in, in conferences that don't have that kind of national footprint. Well, Eben, it's a fascinating read. We suggest everybody take a look at it. This is a five-part series at Bloomberg.com. Hearty congratulations on this, Eben. Thank you, Bill. Much appreciated. It is a pleasure. Eben Novi Williams, who is a sports business reporter for Bloomberg, and we thank him for the visit. Now, when we return, we will talk shop. Mark Medoran is standing by. That's next on SB Nation Radio. 
How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out fanessentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. It is time to talk shop once again, and what a time to be talking shop. We have a big story this week. We welcome in Mark Madoran, president and creator of the Stadiums USA website. And if you didn't already know, Stadiums USA is the preeminent source for stadium news and information at stadiumsusa.com. Well, Mark, here it is. We've been covering it for months The Chargers, after 56 years in San Diego, they're going to warm up the moving vans and head north to Los Angeles. And there are so many sidebars on this story. One of the most intriguing is the news that the team will play in a soccer stadium initially. What do we know about this place, Mark? Well, the StarPub Center has been around for a while. So the primary tenant, as you mentioned, is the LA Galaxy, the soccer team of the MLS. It's located in Carson, California, which is uh, well known as a place the Raiders and the Chargers bought land back about a year and a half ago, hoping to build a joint stadium there. Uh, The stadium is about 10 miles south of downtown L.A., which means it's a little closer to San Diego than the L.A. Coliseum. So will it attract fans? I think it will. The stadium, when it was built, was called the Home Depot Center, and ticket broker StubHub is now the the name sponsor. Uh, The capacity is listed as 27,000, but I noted that there have been some recent soccer games that have had as many as 30,500. It's my understanding that the Chargers are going to try and increase the capacity up over Mm 30,000 for football. The surface is natural grass, which will probably stay natural grass because uh, soccer requires it. Uh, I don't think they'll be going to an artificial surface unless they swap surfaces between games, and I don't think that's going to happen. So it's probably going to stay natural grass for football. Uh, And it'll be packed for Chargers games. The one word I saw in reading descriptions of what's going to happen for football is they think for two seasons it's going to be intimate. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way to describe it. Mark, what is the league saying about the Chargers move? Well, the league has doubts about supporting two teams in L.A. I know publicly they're saying it's definitely a two-team market. They're looking at the New York market and comparing it. But L.A. is a different kind of animal. They were without professional football for 20 years, and there had to be a reason for that. One team in the market for 56 years in San Diego and then departing. That's a serious black eye for the NFL. And if we look back over the last 18 months, you're going to end up with one team moving out of St. Louis, one out of San Diego, and probably the Raiders are going to be making the move uh, out of Oakland, although they may stay there temporarily while the Las Vegas thing is being built. But probably means three teams on the move in the space of two years. That's a real black eye, I think, for the league. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a, it points to some problems. There's a change in the way the financial model works in the NFL. Does it really matter anymore 
where teams play. TV money drives the bus. Mm -hmm. Of course, the teams need to play where the TV markets are the largest to attract viewers. But let's look at Green Bay. People travel for hours to attend games. The population of Green Bay is only 104,000 people. Yeah. Lambeau Field holds over 81,000. <laughs> Not everybody in Green Bay is at the game. So people travel for hours and hours to get there. And I think you can support a team because it's only really eight regular season games a year and two exhibition games. I think you can support the team on that, and I think that's what's going to happen in L.A. I think they'll be able to support those teams very well, and people from San Diego will be moving up there to see the games as they need to. But they're going to need to have a better product on the field, and the Rams certainly this year were not a very good product, and the Chargers were very mediocre. Mark, you mentioned the Raiders. That's the other part of this picture, this NFL stadium situation. And there were meetings held in New York where the Raiders were the focus. Owner Mark Davis presented his plan on moving the team to Las Vegas. How did that go? Well, the road to Las Vegas seems inevitable for the Raiders at this point. Meetings this week with the NFL stadium and finance committees in New York updated the league as to the plans for the Raider relocation. Owner Mark Davis, who, by the way, needs a new haircut, has not yet filed for relocation. <laughs> he has until February 15th uh, to do that. Uh, the league vice president, Eric Grubman, stated after the meetings that the progress Davis has made toward relocation is quite impressive. I think it's almost a done deal. The state of Nevada has already pledged $750 million towards the, the stadium project, which will be about $1.9 billion at this point. The city of Oakland is really a non-factor. They really haven't come up with a plan that's realistic to keep the Raiders in town. Time to roll back the clock, Mark, and take a look at some important dates in stadium and ballpark history. What do you have for us this week? Well, this week in 1942, the Chicago Cubs dropped plans to install lights at Wrigley Field due to the start of World War II. At the time, the steel was donated to the war effort. Nighttime baseball wouldn't debut at Wrigley for a few years after that, <laughs> actually 1988. So they skipped a couple of generations. 1946, the Rams franchise, as we've been discussing, is granted permission to leave Cleveland and move to Los Angeles. So it's goodbye, mistake by the lake. Hello, L.A. Memorial Coliseum. <laughs> now, before we get out of here, we have to do our stadium trivia. We have a new quiz every week on stadiumsusa.com. <laughs> and, of course, Bill, you love to take the, the stadium questionnaire. Oh, yes. Here we go. Can you name the only stadium to host both a Super Bowl and a World Series in the same year? <laughs> Was it Joe Robbie Stadium in Miami? Mm -hmm. Qualcomm Stadium in San Diego, mm -mm. the Metrodome in Minneapolis, mm -hmm. or the L.A. Memorial Coliseum in Los Angeles? Well, I'm whittling that down, and I'm guessing, and I think I'm pretty comfortable with this guess, Mark, the Metrodome in Minneapolis, your favorite stadium of all time. And an excellent guess, because the Vikings were very good, yeah. and also you had the Twins up there. Oh, yeah. But unfortunately, Bill, wrong again. <laughs> the correct answer is Qualcomm Stadium in San Diego. I don't believe that. <laughs> Broncos and Packers met there in Super Bowl 32, 1998. Oh. And then the Padres and Yankees played in the Fall Classic there in the same year. 
That'll never happen again, I can assure you of that. Certainly based on this week's headlines, uh, that will be an historic footnote, Mark. That'll be the end of that. Mark, as always, a pleasure to visit. Have a good week. We'll see you next week. An exciting week in stadiums, Bill. Talk to you next week. Boy, you are right about that. Mark Medoran, We Talk Shop. Now, coming up, let's take a trip to Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City. Chiefs SB Nation reporter Joel Thurman joins us to take a look at the Arrowhead home field advantage for Sunday night's game against the Steelers. It's next here on SB Nation Radio. comes to loud NFL football fans, Kansas City has a special place right at the top of the list. This is a fervent group of fans, and that place ought to be rocking this Sunday when the Chiefs and the Steelers do battle in the AFC Divisional Playoff game. We're going to talk about that and visit with Joel Thorman, Managing Editor of Arrowhead Pride. This is the Chiefs SB Nation website. Joel, welcome aboard here. And, of course, we've all heard the talk, which is normal in the NFL, that uh, these are pros. They're used to playing on the road. The home field advantage isn't that much. Is that actually what we're looking at here at Arrowhead Stadium? Well, it's definitely a home field advantage. I'll tell you that. And, uh, you know, if you think home or away, it doesn't matter too much. I'd go look at Ben Roethlisberger's stats because he's a different guy away from Heinz Field there in Pittsburgh. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it should be it should be a, a good one this weekend. There's one thing to keep an eye on that's developing as we go here. There's a big ice storm coming into Kansas City. I think that's going to affect the attendance at the game. They're talking about this being one of the biggest ice storms in years. And then also, how will it affect the actual game on the field? Yeah. That's another thing that, that we'll find out. You've written previously about the Steelers quarterback, Ben Roethlisberger. You mentioned that just a moment ago. There's been kind of a quiet plan devised uh, for this game. I don't know how quiet it'll actually be. What is the plan, and uh, can it work? Well, Ben and the Steelers, they want to get started fast, which all teams do against you know want to do against the Chiefs. Start fast, go no huddle, don't let the crowd get into it to begin with. Uh, he says that Chiefs, you know, if you go to this no huddle and you go, fa- uh, and you go fast, he says that you can't, uh, you know, that, that the fans can't scream constantly all day long like that during a drive. Like Ben said, a lot of it is dictated by the game. If this is a close game, you know, that the, the stadium's going to be absolutely roaring. But, you know, if the Steelers get up 22 to nothing in the first quarter like they did, when these teams met in week four, then yeah, I think you're looking at a, we're, we're, we're writing a different story about the crowd. Joel, Arrowhead Stadium itself is a fascinating story because very much like its sister stadium, the baseball stadium, uh, Kauffman Stadium, these are two stadiums that were well built. They were done right the first time around, and so it's never been a situation of replacing him in this era. Arrowhead is now the fifth oldest stadium in the NFL. Instead, they renovated it, and it seems to be a great facility. Tell us, is that assessment actually correct? Yes, you're right. It was built in 1972, if I believe, the year after the two years after the Chiefs won their only Super Bowl title. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, I think I think what's unique about it 
is that the fans are so close to the field and it's like a true bowl. So the noise stays in there and that's what you'll hear from players. What's, what's unique about it is that it feels like the fans are right on top of you. Uh, you know, you, you, you build a stadium today, you go out to the Jerry dome, Jerry Jones dome in Dallas. And uh, you know, the fans are a hundred yards away from the playing action because they need room for suites and extra TV cameras and all that sort of stuff. It, it wasn't like that when they built it in the 70s. Um, so I think that's where a lot of the advantage comes from. It's not downtown. It's out, you know, it's kind of away from downtown, off in its own little area, along with the Royal Stadium. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of easy to get there. Parking is always an issue when you got 20,000 cars. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's a pretty convenient place to play. You have seen the before and after of this stadium because you're a native of Kansas City. So you've been there many times. And, of course, they did have a major renovation of this stadium in 2010. How did the stadium change? What actually did they do there? Well, they widened the concourses. They did a bunch of work to the club level, which... I don't really see as much, you know, those are those high dollar tickets. And then they also put in a, the hall of honor, which if you're going, if you're ever going to Arrowhead, I think that's what you need to go see. Um, it, it kind of honors, uh, you know, some of their AFL days and some of the great players throughout the city. They, they just have a bunch of really neat things down there. Cause the chiefs, as you know, are one of the, you know, one of the older franchises and we're kind of there at the beginning. So, you know, they've got a bunch of cool stuff there on, Lamar Hunt and some of the Chiefs Hall of Famers. Joe, we wish you well. Congratulations, too, on uh, Arrowhead Pride. I know as managing editor for that, uh, that must be a source of great Arrowhead Pride, particularly for you. Continued success with it. Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Joe Thorman, our guest, he is the managing editor of Arrowhead Pride, the Chiefs SB Nation website. That's our program for this week. Bill Hazen saying thanks for being with us. Stay tuned right here. We have a full day of sports coverage coming your way on SB Nation Radio. Radio.